New Testament reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 21 to 28. And Mark writes, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once... His fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. If you would please join me in prayer. Lord God, we give you thanks and praise for this morning. Lord, we give you thanks, Father, for waking us up today and calling us out of our beds and into the gathered worship here with your bride at Christ Community Church. Lord, we thank you, Father, for our worship so far this morning, Lord, through Sunday school and through song and through liturgy and confession, Lord, we pray, God, that you would pour out your spirit among us this morning, Lord, as we continue to worship you through hearing your word read and proclaimed, Lord, through coming to the table and through more singing and confession of our faith. And we pray, Lord God, that you would allow us this morning to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible or a device with a Bible, if you would, go ahead and open it to Mark. Uh, I'm not going to read... The rest of the chapter, by any means, we're going to go through the entire chapter of Mark 1 over the course of of Epiphany, which is really today and then next week. But I do want to reference back earlier in Mark's Gospel of chapter 1, just so that way you have it to have it in in front of you. Okay. So as I mentioned, we are in the season of Epiphany, right? Most of us that are regulars at Christ Community Church at this point, we know this, right? This is the fourth Sunday of Epiphany. And in this season, we talk a lot about Jesus being manifested or being revealed. That's the theme of the season. Revealed or manifested as the Christ during this season. Again, that is the primary purpose of the season of Epiphany, is to remind us of this truth. So throughout this season, we constantly, every year, we make note of his revelation or his manifestation to the Gentiles when the Magi see him as the child. We talk about his manifestation and his baptism We also, a couple of weeks ago, we saw this when he was speaking to Nathanael in John chapter 1, and he references Genesis 28, and he manifests himself as Jacob's ladder, the only way to access heaven and the Father. But there's another way that Jesus is manifested as the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, that we haven't touched on yet in Epiphany, and that is in his authority. Our entire text here in Mark 1, 21-28 is completely focused on showing us that Jesus is the Christ because of his authority. 
And it does so by pointing us to his authoritative teaching, but also his complete authority over all the powers and principalities. So I just want to consider those two areas of his authority, and then we're going to come to the table together. So beginning first with his teaching authority, again, we just read just the first two verses of this passage. And they, meaning the disciples, so in the section before this, if you have Mark 1 opened before you, the section before this and then the little section before that was our text for last week. But unfortunately, because of the ice, we weren't able to gather for worship. And so if you've not had a chance to listen to it yet, I did go ahead and record that sermon that I prepared, and it is on our podcasting platform. So you're welcome to go out and listen to it. That's not a plug for me. It's a plug so that way you have the context for today even more. But all that to say, in the section before this, Jesus goes and and he calls the first four disciples with that well-known phrase, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men or fishers of people, depending on the translation you have in front of you. So when we come here to verse 21, and they, those five, the four disciples in Christ, went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they, now the entire congregation, were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as one of the scribes. So, If you were to take this week and make your way through the entirety of Mark's gospel, which is completely possible, it's only 16 chapters, it's the shortest of the four. But if you were to make your way through the entirety of Mark's gospel, you would quickly notice that the central, the the primary activity of Jesus in Mark's gospel is teaching, not miracles, and not casting out demons. Now, Mark obviously does show us these things. Because we even have one here in this text. We've already read it and we're going to talk about it in a minute. But the primary activity of Jesus' earthly ministry that Mark wants us to focus on is his teaching. According to one commentator, Mark refers to Jesus as a teacher 12 times in his 16 chapters. But not once does he refer to him as a miracle worker or as an exorcist. According to another source, Jesus is referred to as a teacher 45 times throughout the New Testament. And so while we, those of us who believe in Christ and have life in his name, we know that Jesus was and is more than a mere teacher. But his authoritative teaching ministry is a key aspect to his identity, to his manifestation as the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus' authoritative teaching is also yet another way That, as Mark writes in verse 14 of this chapter, just a few verses before where we're here now, he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. So now, after inviting these four disciples to follow in his way, to follow in his dust, the dust of the rabbi, he, he enters into the Capernaum synagogue on the Sabbath and he begins teaching. Now, these may seem like arbitrary details, if you're just doing a very simple cursory reading of Mark, but each detail in this first verse is important to Mark's thesis that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He even begins his gospel this way. This is the way he begins. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he goes. Ambrose of Milan writes here, speaking of this passage that we're in, and he says, When Christ begins by preaching and healing on the Sabbath, It shows us exactly where the new creation begins and where the old creation ends. 
Jesus' authoritative teaching on the Sabbath is nothing less than the same proclamation of 114. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is now here. So repent and believe the gospel. And although Mark might record less of the content of Jesus' teaching than the other three gospels do, it is the authority that's behind Jesus' teaching that is Mark's primary concern and his focus for his readers. And so it's because through his authoritative teaching that Mark shows us and displays for us that Jesus is indeed the long-awaited Christ. So notice here, in this verse, Mark doesn't tell us what Jesus taught, but those who were present in the synagogue that day who heard his teaching recognized and were immediately astonished that it was a teaching with authority, unlike the teaching that their scribes would give them. This, too, is a very important detail in understanding Jesus' identity as the Christ. See, the scribes, for those that do know and don't know, the scribes, I'm going to tell you anyway, the scribes were the experts in interpreting the law and in applying the law to the people's lives. The role of a scribe, though, was a professional role. It was a professional vocation. Some of the Pharisees, all of, all of the, all scribes were Pharisees, but not all Pharisees were scribes. Right? But all scribes were theologians who studied the law, who interpreted the law, and then when they would teach, they would pass on the fixed traditions of their predecessors. And that's the key to understanding the teaching of the scribes. They passed on the traditions. Here's where the difference happens. Because Mark's point, and all the other Gospels make this point as well, is that originality in their teaching was not a valued characteristic by the scribes. So, if you want to be a nerd like me and apply it to something else that you really enjoy, the scribes are like really good hobbits. All right? If you go and read the introduction or the, the prologue stuff to the Fellowship of the Ring, Tolkien has this section called Concerning Hobbits. It's the most beautiful song of the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy, I think, in my personal opinion. I used to have it as an alarm sound. It is very peaceful to wake up to. But that being said, in, the, in that section Concerning Hobbits, the very end of that section... He talks about how hobbits don't like stories that they don't already know the endings to. And he, he uses this phrase, he says, they like things to be set out fair and square. These are the scribes. They liked things set out fair and square. Meaning that what the scribes would do is that they would not stand before the congregation, or sit, rather, before the congregation, read the scroll, and then attempt to speak with authority on it. Authority that God had given them due to their office and their vocation. So instead of reading scripture and then attempting to speak with authority on it, they would simply say, well, Rabbi such and such says this, and Rabbi such and such says that. So just to illustrate for the purpose of comprehension, because this helped me when I was preparing for this week, I quote the church fathers a lot. A lot of us here do, right? I've done so this morning. I'm going to do so again before we're done today. I quote other commentators. I've done so this morning. I'm going to do so again. I even quote the Reformers, some of the Puritans every now and then. The point is, is that I use commentaries. I use the works of believers that have gone on in generations past. But if I were to follow in the tradition of the scribes, then what I would do is simply read the passage of Scripture, like Mark 1, 21 to 28, and then for the next few minutes only tell you what Augustine thought or Chrysostom thought, who I do use a lot, or Ephraim the Syrian, or Luther, or Charles Spurgeon. 
I would not tell you what the scripture itself actually says about itself. That would not be authoritative teaching that has been granted to me as a pastor, both by the Lord himself and by you, by calling me and asking me and ordaining me for this work. So the reason why the crowds in the synagogue that day were absolutely astonished with Jesus' teaching is because he was not simply reading the scroll and then sharing the study and the sayings of generations long past. He was teaching them what Scripture had to say about itself and how it manifested him as the long-awaited Christ, the Son of God. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. So repent and believe the gospel. So even though we are left to assume, based on Mark's gospel, what Jesus preached and taught that day, based upon the interaction that happens through the rest of this section, we can make a good, educated guess that the content was concerned about the arrival of the kingdom of God. And anywhere and everywhere that the kingdom of God or that the gospel is proclaimed, it will be challenged. And it will especially be challenged by the powers and the principalities, like it is challenged here. And so we read, he's teaching with authority and they are astonished. And immediately upon that teaching with authority, there was, a, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. Let's stop there. We'll pick up with the rest in a few minutes. Because there's some interesting details in these few verses that reveal to us Jesus' authority and his identity as the Christ that I want us to talk about. There's three in particular. The first is the presence of this unclean spirit. The second is what this unclean spirit actually says. And then the final one is how Jesus responds to this spirit. So first, this unclean spirit itself in verse 23. Mark uses both the term unclean spirit and demon interchangeably throughout his gospel. So, in short, this is a demon. right? This isn't a ghost, it isn't a ghoul, it isn't a poltergeist, it's a demon. right? But the term unclean spirit is quite telling in this passage. We got into this some in Sunday school with uncleanness. The term unclean could also be used like the term defilement. All right? The Old Testament understanding, the Mosaic law of being defiled. According to the Mosaic law, something unclean, something defiled, cannot be used for service to God. Something defiled must be kept separate from God. And also, something defiled must be kept separate from all things that are considered holy or clean. This is why we read so often in, the, in all four Gospels where particular individuals with things like leprosy or a discharge of blood or that were tax collectors or prostitutes were separated from the rest of the society around them because they were considered defiled. They were unclean. So with this defilement principle, you can start to appreciate the weight of this moment. This demon is both physically and spiritually defiling this poor man that it is possessing. Now the presence of a demon, regardless of where you might be, is shocking enough. But consider the presence of a demon 
in the synagogue, the place where Yahweh is worshipped. Or, furthermore, consider the presence of a demon in the presence of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Something defiled has entered the presence of someone completely pure and holy, the God, the incarnate God himself. So then you think about this and you ask, okay, why this moment? Why now? Because remember, Jesus is proclaiming a powerful, authoritative message. And it is rocking the very foundations of creation itself. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is now here. This proclamation is one that the end of the ages has finally arrived. Meaning, this is the end of the ages, not only for those of us who are waiting on the long return of Christ, but it's also the end of the ages for the powers and the principalities. And they've now been made fully aware of it by the authoritative teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the demonic powers, this is a desperate time. For them, they're not hearing the time was fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. They're hearing the end is nigh. And so they are desperate, and desperate times call for desperate measures. So we hear this message proclaimed from Mark 1.14, and we have hope because we have hope in Christ. We have hope in salvation, but the demonic powers have no hope at all. And so like a terrified dog with its back to the wall, If you've ever been around an animal that is terrified and you corner it, it will strike. Most rattlesnakes will not strike you unless they feel like they have no other choice. So don't corner a rattlesnake. (laughs) Most animals will not strike you unless they're just absolutely vicious. But if you corner them, they will bite you. And so for the demonic powers, they're like a dog backed into the corner. And they're going to bite. And their only recourse is to try to attempt to defeat Jesus before his authoritative teaching can start to take hold. And so this demon enters the synagogue, this defiled and unclean thing comes in, and it tries its hand at throwing off the authoritative teaching of Jesus. He's in the middle of presenting the people of God with authoritative teaching on Scripture. What a perfect opportunity for the demonic powers to try to distract their minds and hearts. And so he comes in. And it's more than just his presence, but now he starts to talk, right? Scripture tells us that demons, as demons are wont to do, demons get a little mouthy, right? And this demon is mouthy, right? My dad, when I would get in trouble as a kid, which was a lot more common after my little brother came along, right? My brother and I used to fight a lot. We, you know, whatever. I'm the older brother, so, you know, you get annoyed at little brother, right? That's how it happens. But when I would get in trouble as a kid and I would try to talk back, which is obviously a no-no, right? My dad would use this phrase. He would say, don't give me any lip and do what I told you to do. Right? Uh, and so this demon is giving some lip. Right? The demonic powers are always trying to resist and attempting to resist the authority of Jesus. And this demon, now fully grasping that Jesus has ushered in the end of the ages, rightly understands that Jesus has come to destroy them and to destroy their hold over humanity. And so it cries out. It gives some lip. And it says, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? 
have you come to destroy us? We know who you are. I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. This first question that it asks, it asks two questions and makes a statement. This first question is a play upon an idiom, particularly a Hebrew idiom. And this idiom is used as a response of a perceived inappropriate intervention. Right? So if you were to intervene on somebody's behalf and they didn't think you, were, you had any authority to do so, then they would ask something like this. And so it could be used to say something like this. You could almost say, what's your problem with me? Right? Or the one I like the most is, mind your own business, Jesus. Right? Mind your own business. Again, to quote my dad, who actually listens to all of our recordings, by the way, especially while he's mowing the lawn because he has a big yard and so he listens to podcasts. To quote my dad, this demon is giving Jesus some lip. What's your problem, Jesus? Mind your own business. But this question, this first question, is asked with annoyance. The authoritative presence of Jesus the Christ is an annoyance to the powers and principalities. The Venerable Bede, one of the great church fathers, says this. He says, the presence of the Savior is the torment of the devils. The demonic powers are annoyed by the incarnation of Christ. But then this demon asks a second question. He says, what's your problem with me, Jesus? Have you come to destroy us? This is a question that is asked, not in annoyance. This is asked in complete fear and terror. The us here, now he asks this in the third person, the us here is a reference to all of the demonic powers, all of the powers and principalities, because Jesus' presence signifies that the authority of the Christ has come fully to break their power. The demonic powers are quaking at the arrival of God incarnate. In Christ, the kingdom of God has now mounted an invasion into the enemy territory, and they're completely annoyed by it. They're angry about it. And they know that they're threatened, and they have to try to thwart it at all costs. And so, this demon continues to do so, and he makes this third statement. And he does something really kind of foolish here. He attempts to thwart Jesus' authority. And so he says this, again, Mind your own business. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Mark has a tendency to use, we call it, he has a tendency to use this thing we call the messianic secret. All, right. All four Gospels kind of get to it, not John's as much as the other synoptics, but you see this primarily in Mark, and it, and it happens here, sort of. But every time Jesus does something, he heals somebody, he does, raises somebody from the dead, he says, don't tell anybody about it. Go and do this, follow the law, and be quiet. The idea behind Mark particularly is the aspect, not that Jesus is trying to be secretive, is that his time had not come. Right? His hour had not yet come. This is how John gets to it in John 2. Right? His mother comes to him and says, they're out of wine, and he goes, it's not my hour. Right? That's the messianic secret. Right? So this is kind of what is happening here. But this demon says, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. He identifies who Jesus really is. In the ancient world, knowledge of a person's identity, of their true self, gave you authority 
over that person. So by confirming Jesus' identity, what this demon is doing is pathetically attempting to gain authority over the Christ, the Son of God. He knows exactly what he's doing. And so let's, let's point this out. It is absolutely true. What this demon says in this statement is absolutely factually true. Right? Jesus is the Holy One of God. But notice, Jesus doesn't engage this demon in any kind of discussion. Because, as God incarnate, let's go back to the defilement principle. As God incarnate, he cannot abide the demon's defilement in his presence. Nor will he tolerate its attempt to exercise authority over him by naming him. Augustine says a lot about this, particularly in his work, in his work The City of God. He says this. He says, To the demons, Christ is known by his striking terror into them. For his purpose was to free from their tyrannical power all who were predestined for his kingdom and glory. Therefore Christ did not make himself known to the demons as life eternal. Rather, he made himself known to the demons through the effects of his power and through the signs of his presence. Or to use the phrase that Mark is using here, Christ manifested himself by his authority. And so we see Jesus' authority immediately, immediately at work in how he responds to this demon. So again, he doesn't engage him in any kind of discussion. He just says, be silent and come out of him. Shush, quit being mouthy, don't give me any lip, and go away. <laughs> Jesus' silencing of this demon demonstrates his authority over them. But it also demonstrates his authority to reveal himself in his own way and in his own time. But it also further demonstrates that the public confession of Jesus as the Christ, as the Holy One of God, is a revelation from God himself, not from men and definitely not from demons. In Matthew 16, we studied this back over ordinary time last year. In Matthew 16, we read this well-known scene. Jesus says to the disciples, he says, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replies, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered Simon and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthians in chapter 12, verse 3 of 1 Corinthians, he says, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God will ever say Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So Augustine actually asks a really great question here. He asks, how is this demon's confession of Jesus as the Holy One of God any different from Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ? That's a valid question, right? Again, the demon's not wrong in making this statement, so what's the difference? Here's the difference. Augustine asks, he says, was it merely because Peter said you are the Christ, the son of the living God? He says, well, now Christ who pronounced Peter blessed regarded not merely the sound of his words, but the affections of his heart. He asks, so what's the difference? The difference, he says, is that Peter spoke in love, but the demons speak in fear. So he asks, Let, tell us how faith is to be defined if even the devils can believe and tremble. He says, faith is defined as this. A faith, only faith that works by love is faith. His point being this. 
And this is what I think Mark is getting to in this section. It's that the clean and the holy cannot abide the unclean and the defiled. Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God, silences the demons because they are unworthy to confess Him or to reveal Him publicly. That is a work of God alone. St. Athanasius writes this, he says, God, Christ put a bridle in the mouths of the demons, for although what they said was true, he did not wish that the truth should proceed from an unclean mouth. So by his authority, Jesus commands the silence of this mouthy demon and commands it to leave this poor man that it is possessing. And unlike other exorcists, notice, Jesus does not need spells, he does not need rituals, he does not need an incantation. He only needs his authority. His authority is enough. He speaks, and the demons listen. So with this exorcism, Jesus' divine authority to teach is reinforced. And his identity as the Christ is once again manifested. Because notice what occurs the moment this demon leaves. Again, he says, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, obeying, convulsed and cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And they, going back to the synagogue, the crowd, the congregation in the synagogue that day, they were, were all amazed. And they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So for the second time in this passage, the crowds are amazed. And they're amazed at Jesus' authority. But notice... They're first amazed by his teaching authority before they refer to his authority over the powers and the principalities. So what Mark again is doing is he's pointing us to Jesus' primary activity of his earthly ministry, to teach and to proclaim the gospel, because the kingdom of heaven has arrived. The exorcisms, the healings, the raising of the dead, all of his other miracles, while very important to identify him as the Christ, they're not meant to be showy displays of his power and glory and authority for his self-glorification. Rather, they are evidence that the power of the kingdom of God has been manifested in the authority of Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so now as we prepare to come to the table to remember and to proclaim and to give thanks for the death and the resurrection of Christ, I want to leave you with a word of encouragement. So for the confident believers in the room, this week, today, go in the grace and knowledge that Jesus has been manifested as the Christ by his authority, but also encourage one another in this truth. For the believer in the room that struggles with doubt or with fear, know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that he has all authority in heaven and on earth. He has authority over the powers and the principalities, over death, over hell, and over sin. And by his death and resurrection, he has conquered them all. So rejoice and cling to Jesus. And finally, for the unbeliever, I will just leave you with the words of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God himself. The time is fulfilled. The end of the ages has come. And the kingdom of God has arrived. So repent and believe in the gospel. Amen.